The following message is by Brother Doug Birch, Associate Pastor at North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Take your Bibles again and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. I read that a moment ago. The passage that we just read uh, in 1 Samuel and uh, the song that we just sang, I requested that because it's just always been a favorite of mine um, because it does focus on the Lord and focuses on His uh, help uh, that we need so much of the time. This chapter in 1 Samuel um, is, is a great celebration. It, uh, it is a victory recorded for us uh, because its significance carries with it the remembrance of some defeats that the nation of Israel had uh, suffered right in this very place. This place was named Ebenezer by Samuel. Uh, he had taken a great uh, stone and set it there to uh, serve as a memorial, serve as a reminder of their victory over the Philistines. The word Ebenezer means stone of help. Um, this, this place is significant because in this very place, the nation of Israel suffered two defeats, one right after the other from the Philistines. Earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see the word used again, Ebenezer, but that's actually uh, looking ahead because it was not named that until you see it in chapter 7. I'm going to read just a few verses in chapter 4. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. Now again, it's not called that yet, but by the time this was written, it was called that. So they camped there at Ebenezer and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. The Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined the battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. So just very quickly, 4,000 of the nation of Israel were lost. And then the people in verse 3 come into the camp, and the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of, the, of our enemies. So they're thinking the missing ingredient, the Ark of the Covenant. We got to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, and because that's here, that can save us. Well, they were sorely mistaken. When they did that, at first, the Philistines were frightened because there's this shout, there's this victory shout, uh, pre-victory shout by the nation of Israel saying, we've got the Ark of the Covenant, there's no way we can lose. Philistines were frightened and saying, this has never happened before. There's gods there. These are the same, this is the same God that defeated the Egyptians. How can we stand up against them? And their people talked to themselves and said, listen, if you cower now, we'll be their servants as they've been our servants. We can't give up now. And so they fought valiantly. And then in verse 10 of chapter 4, the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a great, very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. So first it was 4,000. They bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, 
then they lose 30,000. And not only that, the sons of the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. It was captured by the Philistines. Somebody came out of the battle and went back to tell Eli, the high priest, and as he heard this news of Israel being defeated in battle and running from their enemies and, and his sons being slaughtered and the ark being taken, he fell back in his chair, broke his neck, and died. His daughter-in-law was about to deliver a child, and when she heard the terrible news of her, of her father-in-law dying and her husband dying in battle, and the Ark of the Covenant being taken. She delivered the child, and she died. She, she named her child Ichabod, which literally means where is the glory, or some people say no glory, because the Ark of the Covenant had, had gone. and The glory of God is gone out of Israel. This was the symbol of the presence of God. The place upon which the, the blood on the Day of Atonement would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, right on the lid. And God would uh, accept this atonement. Now it's gone. Well, we remember the story of it being gone for just a few months and the Philistines sent it back. Well, when it got back, the people that came right across the border and the people that were seeing it come back, they were just overjoyed. And you remember what they put in that ark? They had these little golden mice and golden emblems of the uh, problems that they were afflicted with. Some of the people in the city of Israel opened up that ark and looked inside and God killed them. Now there are discrepancies as to the number. Here in the King James it says 50,070. Some translations will say 70. Brother Matt's the Hebrew scholar. I'll let you ask him and he can explain it in detail to you why the difference is there. But they were, they were scared of the ark. So they sent the ark to Kirjath-Jerim and it stayed there for a really long time. The time between that and what we just read in 1 Samuel chapter 7 was, was 20 years. And so... By this time, Samuel has grown up. Remember, he was brought up uh, under the tutelage of Eli. And now he's grown up, and he's, he's become their leader, their judge. He's this transitional figure between, um, you know, the period of the judges and the books of the kings. And see, so he tells them, now, if you really want to return to the Lord, you've got to stop with your false gods. So they did. And this is when he begins to pray for them. And they're there just praying and being judged by Samuel. But the Philistines, I guess, think that they're gathered for battle. Because after all, this was a place 20 years before that they had fought. And so they gather for battle. And so the, the, the Israelites are just frightened to death. But this time, they're not going to use the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. They're going to go to Samuel and look, look at back in chapter 7, verse 8. Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, for he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. He will save us. And so Samuel prays, and the Lord speaks. In verse 10, the Lord thunders with a great thunder, 
and the Philistines were so confused. The scripture says here they were smitten before Israel. And God gained a victory. Israel then understood it's our prayers in God. We get rid of the, the sin in our life. They confessed we have sinned before the Lord. And they pray. Samuel prays for them continually. And they are victorious. And as a memorial, Samuel takes this stone and sets it right there. And calls it Ebenezer, a stone of help. Because he said, hitherto, or from this, up to this point, has the Lord helped us. Now that's significant too, because it wasn't just a point in time that God has helped us. God's been helping us all along. It's a reminder that our help comes from the Lord. So, as we look at uh, another passage today in Luke 18, I want us to think about that. I want us to think in those times in our lives when we pray to God, we must not ever stop praying to God. And we must, if we, if we can, just conjure up in our minds those Ebenezers, those times of, of remembrances so that we can remember when God has helped us. Up to this point, God has helped me. He is not going to abandon me. So long as I want to trust Him, so long as I know that He is my, my help in time of trouble, God will not leave me. In Luke 18, this very same idea is taught. In verse 1 of Luke 18, it says, He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. In preference of, the, a preference, a preference of this, this subject came up in the previous chapter. The Pharisees had demanded of the Lord when the kingdom of God would come. He said to them, it does not come through observation. Now, that's, that's funny to me. That's interesting because we're always taught to be looking for the coming of the Lord. But not the way they were looking for it. You know, they were always looking to God and looking to Jesus and trying to judge him. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Oh, he can't be the Lord. He can't be the Messiah. But right after that, the Lord turns to his disciples and he says in verse 22 of chapter 17 of Luke, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And you think about it, the time that they were with the Lord during those years of his ministry, those three years, any kind of a problem, they could go right to the Lord and say, how do we handle this? What do we do right here? Jesus foresaw a time when he wasn't going to be there, not, not physically. He said, there's going to come a time when you're going to wish that you could see one of the days of the Lord and, and you're not going to see him. But that doesn't mean that we don't have any way to communicate with God, nor does it mean that he doesn't have any way to communicate with us or to help us. And so right after that, he gives them this parable to teach men to always pray and not to faint. Notice how he does this saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. 
And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? That last verse, coupled with what we saw in chapter 17, helps us to understand the context. And that is, we pray until the Lord returns. We have that kind of faith in God until he comes back. Because he knew there was going to come a time when people, his disciples especially, would long to ask the Lord, how do we deal with this? How do we get out of this one? And then he wouldn't be there to just give them the answer right then. He knew that they still had an avenue that they could communicate, and that was through prayer. And so, to illustrate the point, he spoke this parable. And he uh, now, this is, this is so significant. We don't need to lose sight of this. He chose a widow. In this society, a widow would have been seen as very um, vulnerable. One who could not defend herself. If she, and the, the whole context appears to be that she does not have any man in her life, any brother, any uncle, uh, any family that can take care of her, anyone that can defend her because somebody has taken advantage of her and she has no recourse, even in court. In this time, men went to court. Women did not. She's in court showing us that she has nobody to defend her cause on her behalf. So he says, there was in the city a judge that feared not God. Now that's bad. Feared not God, neither regarded man. We read in the Old Testament when Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah and he ordained judges or chose judges. He said, you're not judging for people, you're judging for God. And you remember where you are. Now, I know that's taboo now. Our judges can't invoke God. That's just wrong. I mean, the idea that uh, to have somebody who is in a position of judge can't be a believer in God or even talk about it because that means he's uh, uh, partial is it's, it's just crazy but he says here's this judge he does not fear God he does not regard man in other words he does not he cannot be appealed to on the basis of this is what God commands you can't you can't cause him to be uh, looking at the word of God and be swayed that way and not only that, he had no regard for man. And the word regard here literally means he could not be turned. He could not be shamed. You couldn't say, this is a widow. I mean, where's your humanity? He, he could not be even shamed into anything like that. You know, if, if uh, children do something and maybe they've been taught correctly and then they do something wrong and you say, aren't you ashamed? Or you should be ashamed. And then... Most of the time, that child, if they've been brought up to understand what is right and wrong, is ashamed. And that is enough to turn their behavior back toward God. This man could not be turned. He had no regard. He had no fear of God. Well, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him and said, Avenge me of mine adversary. This word means to protect. Defend me. She went to the judge because he was the one in authority. He was the one who had the authority to do what needed to be done, to 
to defend her, to protect her, to cause whatever it was, however she had been defrauded, to make that right. Well, he wouldn't. He was not touched that she was a widow, and he certainly was not touched by the Word of God. She kept coming to him, saying this. And so he wouldn't for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man. Now there's something significant. He didn't even care what people thought about him. He freely admitted, I don't care about God. I don't have any fear of God. I don't care about mankind. Now I realize this is a parable. It's a story that Jesus is telling to illustrate a point. But I think that we can probably understand that there are unjust judges. And there are those who turn to the courts for restitution, but who are mistreated and justice is miscarried. But notice what her reaction is, or what his reaction is, because she won't stop coming. He says, because this widow troubleth me. The New Living Translation says, because this woman's driving me crazy. She won't shut up. She just keeps coming day after day after day after day. She won't stop. I will protect her. I will avenge her. Not because I fear God. Not because I have regard for this poor widow, but she's driving me crazy. She won't stop. He says, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. The word weary is a boxing term which means to beat black and blue. You like the picture there? Here's this poor defenseless widow woman. Here's this judge with all this authority. Can't be turned by anything. You can't even, you know, you can't even appeal to him on the basis of humanity. And here she is beating him up. And all she's doing is coming to him day after day after day and pleading with him to defend her, to protect her. Now, of course, others more wise of the ways of the world than she would probably have said, why don't you just give it up? He's not going to hear you. He doesn't care about you. Doesn't care about God. Why don't you just give it up? She wouldn't. Now, we, we can step back and say, now what's, what's God doing here? Is he comparing himself to this unjust judge? No, he's contrasting himself with this unjust judge. This judge did the right thing, not because it was the right thing, but because she didn't give up and she knew that he was the only one who had any authority to do anything about her situation. Here's my point. In this world, things often don't go our way. We are defrauded we are taken advantage of. The only one who has really any authority to do anything about our situation is God. We must never faint. We must never lose sight of the fact that God is the only one who can deliver us. 
He is our Ebenezer. He is our stone of help. And so to illustrate that point, he chooses this widow woman who cannot, will not give up. She keeps going to the person time after time because he's the one that has the authority to make things right. She won't give up. Nothing can change her mind. And so that's why the text verse in verse 1, he spoke this parable to them to this end, for this reason that men ought always to pray and not to faint. To not be exhausted in it, not be wearied in it. To not get to the point where, I guess God just doesn't care. I guess he's not going to do anything. Now, you may be sitting there and you may be thinking, well, wow, I don't have that kind of situation. I'm not like her. Everything in my life just goes grand. Well, for the rest of us, I'll give us something to pray about and give you something to pray about too. And I, in doing this, I want to I want to set this up just reading briefly some history. In 2004, there was a petition circulated in Arkansas. This was Arkansas's same-sex marriage ban. This was an amendment. This petition was circulated so that if enough signatures were on it, it would get on the ballot. This was a ballot initiative. November the 2nd, 2004, this was approved. It, it became law in our state. I remember that very well. I was a pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Corning. I had just gotten there that year, and I usually did not get involved, especially from the pulpit in politics, because that just goes nowhere. I mean, that's worse than getting a the thermostat wrong in the church, you know. I mean, that, you just make people mad. Uh, but I did. I brought this petition to church with me. And I, I said, I, here's this petition. I'm going to sign it. You don't have to sign it to be a member here. But I'm going to sign it. If you want to sign it, you know, I'll, I'll make it available. At the time, we were broadcasting on Corning Cable TV. And there were people that saw me on television that said that. And they called me and said, bring that petition. I want to sign it. So I did. Several places in Corning. And my family, we took that petition after we gathered up some signatures and we went to Little Rock along with a lot of other people. It was kind of a big deal. Presented these petitions at, at this deal that was going on. And, and, and when it passed, I was overjoyed. I thought, man, this is great. This was because another state, and I think it was the state of Massachusetts, was the first state in the United States that allowed same-sex marriage. And in anticipation of that coming to Arkansas, and we didn't want to be... Um, forced to agree with that, we, we, we were kind of getting ahead of the game. And this happened in many other states. Well, it was challenged. And in, on June 26, 2015, um, I'm sorry, before that, May 9th, 2014, Pulaski County Circuit Court Judge Chris Piazza said this was unconstitutional challenges all over the United States where finally on June 26, 2015, the United States Supreme Court ruled that same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marriage. So that ruling overturned all voter-approved constitutional bans on same-sex marriage. 
Over the years, I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen, a shift of more and more acceptance of things that you, that you and I understand from the Scripture to be sin. And even more and more, a shift in that there's more and more hostility towards us because we keep preaching what the Bible says. November the 9th, 2018, in a Baptist newsletter called Baptist News Global, whose editor wrote this particular article. This editor is a Baptist pastor. He's an associate pastor at a Baptist church. And I looked up his bio there. He has a Master of Divinity degree in a Southern Baptist seminary. And listen to what he wrote, November 29th, 2018. His article is entitled this, Why Being Transgender is Not a Sin. He says, Some people today identify as gender fluid, meaning they find in themselves bits of both male and female identity, and cannot definitely say they are one or the other. While this may sound unsettling to some of us on first hearing, now listen to this, a return to Genesis might help. There we also learn that God created both night and day, and that God separated land from sea. Yet we have no problem understanding the existence of dawn and dusk or marshes and everglades. You get what he's saying? Because there is the scripture saying that God created night and day, yet we can see dawn and dusk. And also because God separated the land from the sea, and there is the existence of marshes and everglades, stands to reason that even though God said he created male and female, there's more to it than meets the eye. Because there is dawn and dusk and marshes and everglades, it's okay that there's gender fluidity. Now this is a Baptist pastor using, misusing the scripture to say that that's all okay. October the 10th, 2019, Beto O'Rourke was asked this question by CNN's Don Lemon. He asked him if he thought religious institutions like colleges, churches, charities, asked him should they lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage. Now, Beto O'Rourke, if you don't remember, was running for president, president of the United States. And he was asked, should these religious institutions like churches, should they lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? Yes, was his answer. He said, there can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, 
any organization in America that denies the full human rights and full civil rights of every single one of us. Now, his campaign walked that back because there was an immediate backlash. They tried to say, well, he was really talking about those who discriminate. That's not what he was asked. He was asked, do you think they should lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? But even if you give him that, that he was talking about those to discriminate, well, does that mean that we as a church could not oppose somebody trying to join our church who had same-sex marriage? Or if somebody would not uh, confess that as sin in our church, that we could not exclude them from membership if they engage in that kind of lifestyle? If I know the world a little bit, they're going to call that discriminatory. I'm saying this to tell you they're coming after us. And we better be ready. That news article that I just read from, February, 20, uh, February 6th, 2020, you're going to see a progression. In this same Baptist News Global, here is another article, not by the same person, but somebody else. Here's the title of this Baptist news article. Trans 101 for Churches. Ways to Make a Difference for Transgender Persons. One quote in this article says, If the church is to fulfill its mission to love and care for all people, Christians and congregations need to understand and welcome transgender people. A transgender person is somebody who is born male and wants to be a woman, or somebody who is a woman or born female and wants to be a girl. That's who they identify with, and, and we're supposed to accept that. And if they choose to have feminine pronouns attached to them, if, even if they're a man, we're supposed to do that. Then it says, with the transgender community's increasing visibility, many Christians have opted to resort to condemnation and rejection of trans and non-binary people. A non-binary person is a person who is gender fluid. One who says, well, I don't really say I'm either. They argue that God created humans as male and female and that those categories are unchangeable and inherently tied to biology. Other Christians, however, note that even the Bible itself includes gender-diverse people. Eunuchs play important roles in the Bible. And queer biblical scholars have pointed out to them as examples of gender diversity. Here's what they say. Jesus himself said there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Well, that's even quoted from the King James. Queer interpreters note that here, Jesus may be recognizing diverse categories of gender and sexual identity. Furthermore, the Bible tells us, still quoting, the Bible tells us that humans are created in the image of God, male and female, 
if male and female are the nature of God, can we then not think of God as the one who encompasses all gender? The God who crosses genders? Trans means across, beyond, through, changing thoroughly, transverse, on the other side of. The transcendent God is the one who crosses over, the one who moves beyond and across boundaries. Transgender people reflect this crossing over. Can you, can you imagine what's going on here? Taking the word of God and twisting it in such a way that says, God made this happen this way. He is the one who has transgender people to show who he really is. It's disgusting. Here's how they say that you and I ought to handle this. Have a statement of inclusion that mentions gender identity and expression and is included each week in the bulletin and on the church's website. Well, I got a bulletin, but I sure didn't see that in there. Here's an example that they said that we ought to use. First Baptist Church welcomes people of every race, nationality, sexual identity, and gender identity and expression. Now, that ought to be what we put in our bulletin every week. He's, they say, make sure your church facilities have gender-inclusive bathrooms. Which means let the boys go into the girls' room. Use inclusive language. Now listen to this. For example, rather than using brothers and sisters, use siblings. This is a Baptist paper. Okay? Rather than using mothers and fathers, use parents. Learn to use they as singular. Ensure that church activities are gender inclusive. For example, make your women's Bible study a Bible study for all women and feminine or female identifying people. Make sure your men's prayer group is a group for all men and male or masculine identifying people. Commemorate and celebrate relevant events such as the Transgender Day of Remembrance, National Coming Out Day, Pride Month, and LGBTQ History Month. If you need something to pray about, there it is. And we better not stop praying. It is just getting ridiculous. Last month, Hasbro, the toy company, their top executive said, you know, kids want to be able to represent their own experiences. The way the brand currently exists with the Mr. and Mrs., we're talking about Mr. Potato Head, Mr. and Mrs., that's limiting when it comes to both gender identity and family structure says Hasbro Senior Vice President Kimberly Boyd. Well, they started to do that, and they got a lot of backlash. So I guess we're still going to have Mr. Potato Head for right now. Now, I won't say that on the box. It'll just say Potato Head. How do we deal with it? I mean, we pray, yes. We pray, and we don't stop praying. Because God is the only one who can do anything about this. 
there has been some changes. State of Arkansas, there's some legislation in Arkansas where we have just made it a law. The governor just signed it last week, I believe it was, that boys cannot compete in, in girls' sports. You know, transgender boys, the ones who, I mean, transgender girls is what they call them. They can't compete in girls' sports. But you know, there are those in our societies that are saying that there's a lot of trans people that are as young as four years old. Four years old, and they want to give them uh, treatment. Like you've got a little boy who wants to be a girl. Give him treatment and say, it's okay for you to want to be a girl. Four years old. Tomorrow, the Arkansas State Legislature is voting to make it illegal to either medicate or perform surgery on a minor who wants to change their gender. It's, it's amazing that we're even dealing with this. It's sad. It's really sad. And how it probably happen with us, because, you know, we, we can build our little bubble and say, well, that's out in the world. Somebody, remember the cake shop? Remember that? This same-sex couple comes into this cake shop. We want you to make this cake. And the guy says, I, I just can't do it. Now, you can buy one of those over there. Now, see, you don't hear that on the news. He said, you can buy something over there, but I am not going to celebrate this. It goes against my convictions. They crucified him in social media. It, do you think that's the only cake shop around? It's about shutting you down, folks. And that's probably how it's going to happen with us. Somebody, somewhere, is going to get bold enough because it's getting that way. They're going to try and join us. Not because they want to believe and you know, be just like us, but they... They want to test. And we're going to deny it. You know, we're not going to let somebody join our church that is in that kind of a lifestyle. And they're going to get on social media. And they're going to create a following. And we're going to see some picket walkers out here. It's coming. Now, I don't say that to scare anybody. And I'll just say this, too, because... You know, I'm 51. I've been preaching since I was 19. And in those 32 years, I've been more than once accused of not having any compassion, being too harsh. But believe it or not, one time somebody says I was soft-pedaling this. And probably how that happened was this. A few years ago, when I was a pastor of a church, there was a young man in our congregation who came to my wife, said to her that, she, that he had a problem that he was attracted to people of his own gender. She counseled him a few times and encouraged him to come talk to me because I was the pastor. She and I both counseled him a few times. I can't remember how many. But then I counseled him on and off for several years, just the two of us. Here, here's what I know. Whatever I've said, if you think it's been too harsh, I don't apologize for what I've said, maybe how it comes across, but I want you to know, 
homosexuality, transgender, gender fluidity, all those whatever words they come up with, God did create male and female. There is no in-between. God did not make you, if you are one gender and want to be another, God didn't make you that way. And as I've said to others that I've talked to on this subject, who were dealing with this, God does still love you. He does not love what you're doing, but He loves you. There's a person close to me and my family who has embraced this lifestyle. Broke my heart. And I asked this person, do you even go to church? He said, I miss going to church. I'd like to go to church. But they can't accept me who I am. I am who, how God made me, he said to me. I said, no, you're not. It hasn't changed my love for this person in my family. It does break my heart. And I still pray. And I told him, I will pray that God will reveal himself to you because Satan has duped you. And I'll, I'll pray for anybody. And I want you to know that this church would pray for anybody. I mean, maybe you caught, are caught up in this. Maybe you are dealing with convictions and dealing with desires that are sinful. Or maybe, maybe you're just okay with it. Maybe that's not you, but somebody else. And so we're praying for you because that is not right. The Word of God is the Word of God. And you and I must go to the Lord in prayer constantly for this. The unjust judge did what was right because she wouldn't stop coming to him. She knew he had the authority. You and I must understand that God has the authority to do what's right and to make things right. We must never give up. And so he says, hear what the unjust judge says. Shall not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him though he bear long with them? It feels like forever. Lord, when is this going to happen? But he says, I tell you, he will avenge them or protect them, defend them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on earth? What's he going to find when he returns at North Bryant? What is he going to see here? Did we just give up? Did we just like those articles I just read? Just give in? It's okay. It's not a sin. I mean, it's like a floodgate coming this way. Might as well accept it. Can't stop it. That's, that's the way I think people are happening. That's the way it's happening. I think a lot of times people say something like that. Well, just, I mean, yeah, there are the Everglades. There is dawn and dusk. I, I guess that male and female, I guess there is in between. I mean, a master of divinity in a seminary thinks that? And he's pastor of a church. Or associate pastor. Well, I'm an associate pastor of a church. I don't have a master's degree. I got a bachelor's degree. 
But I know the Bible doesn't say what he's saying. Something's wrong. Don't stop reading and studying your Bible. You'll find the truth in there. But when the Son of Man comes, what will he find? Will he find you and me? We stuck to the Bible. We would not give up. Now listen. Yes, compassion. I mean, all it's going to take for all, you know, this hate crime stuff, you know, somebody's going to go out and do something wrong, sinful, kill somebody who's in that lifestyle and say, well, I just heard Brother Doug preach that, you know, so I knew it was wrong. So that's what it's going to take. And then they're going to say, you can't say that because that's promoting hate. Pray, pray, pray. Don't ever give up. God is our only resource. He is our only help. I'm glad that our governor signed that legislation, but I was a little bit alarmed when he said, well, to balance it out, I wish they would also, talking about Arkansas legislature, I wish they would also um, uh, uh, write a law, a, a hate crime law. Give me a hate crime bill. And I'm like, why? Do you know it's already against the law to kill somebody? It's already against the law to, to treat somebody bad. All the hate crime stuff does is just give ammunition to people to put pressure on us to bend and be okay with their sin. I know, I'm just sticking the mud, you know. Don't love anybody. A long time ago, I tried to be careful what I said. And I said, when I get to be an old gray-haired preacher, I'm going to say what I really think. Well, i got a few gray hairs, so I'm going to start saying what I think. No, really, seriously, don't stop praying. This needs to be bathed in prayer. And again, I don't mean to suggest that people aren't beyond help. As we're praying for God's protection, let us pray for those in those lifestyles that they would come to a, a real understanding of the knowledge of the Lord. And I know there are those who are professed Christians in those lifestyles. We need to pray that God convict them of their sin and that they return to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this time that You've given us to be here today. Lord, we, we know that we know what the scripture says about a lot of things. There are so many people who are silver-tongued and take your word and twist it uh, to their own devices. Perhaps sometimes, Lord, we may not know how to ex exactly answer or respond to, to others. Help us, Lord, in our own human weaknesses to be bold in the faith, to take your word as it is, to believe it, to accept it, to stand on it. Lord, Lord, perhaps there are those here that have never trusted in you as Savior. We pray that this might be the day that hearts would be turned toward you, that we might be a shining light in this community to point lost souls to you. Perhaps there's somebody here today, Lord, who needs to be baptized. 
We pray that as your spirit deals with them in this area, that they would submit to your will. Lord, perhaps there are those who you're just dealing with in other areas. And whatever area it might be, we pray that your will would be worked in these circumstances. We pray, Lord, that you would, when you return, that you would find us faithful, always praying to you. Help us, Lord, to take these things as we have read them today. Help us, Lord, to raise up Ebenezer's in our lives, these remembrances of the times that you have helped us, understanding that you're always going to be there for us. Lord, we pray that you would be with us each day. Give us strength. Forgive us of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you are encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.